Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. G'day, and welcome to the National Security Podcast and our special series of the Women in National Security Conference. I am Gabrielle Knaip, and this is the fourth day of the series, and we've got another great collection of insights from this week's conference. Chris has done the rounds again, and today he heard from Linda Reynolds, the Assistant Minister for Home Affairs, about how she went from the Army up to Capitol Hill and her vision for the portfolio. Let's take a listen. Assistant Minister Reynolds, thanks very much for being on the National Security Podcast. Absolute pleasure. You gave a very hard-hitting speech in there tonight, talking about some very important things like slavery and so on, but I'm interested to hear about some of your experiences being a woman in the national security community. I'm an ex-soldier myself, so I'm actually quite interested how you've gone from military service to becoming a minister in the government. Well, I think nearly 30 years in the army has prepared me very well for politics, And my previous experience as a Chief of Staff for the Minister for Justice and Customs during some of our most challenging periods during September 11, the Bali bombings, the Tampa, really has prepared me very well for this role today. And and how have you found working in that space all these years, uh, being a woman in a traditionally male-dominated space, and how have you seen that space changed in terms of diversity? It's been quite a journey. Obviously, the army I joined 30 years ago was quite a different army from today. And I know that's the same in the police force, in security agencies. So things have changed a lot over that time. And I think my military experience has prepared me very well for this portfolio. And sometimes in surprising ways. But being here today, meeting 300 women in the national security Um, in national security here in Australia is quite amazing and having a look at the women hearing their stories hearing what they're doing and hear the contributions that they're making again just reinforces my resolve to make sure that we not only keep the door open for these women in terms of working in national security and getting promoted in national security but really making sure that we keep the doors wide open for the next generation of women because women have a fundamentally important role to play in all aspects of our nation's national security efforts here and overseas. And hearing what they've got to say and hearing the contributions they're making makes me very optimistic about the future. Fantastic. Now, you mentioned your portfolio. You're quite new in your portfolio. What are some of the visions that you have in terms of national security and securing the peace? Well, as Assistant Minister for Home Affairs, I'm responsible for, for customs, for emergency management and crisis coordination, but also for community safety. I've also got responsibility for issues such as firearms, countering violent extremism and modern slavery. Particularly in relation to countering violent extremism, women in peace and security, which I talked about tonight, and also modern slavery are things that I am personally very invested in 
and those are areas that we are making some good progress in here in Australia but I think we really need it needs a push and again as I talked about tonight these are issues that I'm looking at very closely then there's a number of things that we can do to really push these issues issues along Fantastic. And you mentioned uh, some of the young generation of women that are here tonight. What is your advice as someone who has achieved a lot in the national security space? What is your advice to some young women who look to follow your path into this important role? And as I said, what is traditionally a male dominated space? Go for it. Excellent advice. Thanks very much for being on the National Security Podcast. Anytime. He was also lucky enough to catch up with Lydia Khalil from the Lowy Institute, and they talked about the evolution of ISIS, from the caliphate to the immigration story. Let's have a listen. Lydia Khalil, welcome to the Women in National Security Conference and the National Security Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. And you are the research fellow for the West Asia program at the Lowy Institute. You've previously worked in the US and the national security community as well, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So I focus on um, international terrorism and Middle East politics for the Lowy Institute. But previously I'd worked um, for US government in various capacities, from law enforcement agencies like the NYPD and Boston Police to the US Defense Department and State Department. Um, so I've kind of ran the gamut of uh, both uh, private and public and nonprofit sector. As you know, the conference is sold out uh, today and tomorrow, so let's give a treat to those people who couldn't get tickets to the conference, and why don't you give me some of the key points that you made uh, in regards to countering terrorism and countering violent extremism in your presentation today. Sure. Well, we had a great panel on terrorism and CVE, and the discussion went in many, many different places. We had a really interesting and broad range of discussion. Uh, One of the things, uh, a few of the things, actually, that I pointed out was um, how jihadist terrorism is remaining and evolving uh, post the collapse of the Islamic State Caliphate. So as we've all heard in the news and saw saw the spectacular rise of the Islamic State and also its ignominious fall of the Islamic State, and it might... Uh, kind of lull us into this false sense of belief that um, jihadist terrorism from the Islamic State is on the wane. Uh, One of the things that I argue is that even though we're seeing a reduction right now, there are a lot of indicators to point that Islamic State is going to remain a force within the jihadist universe, will remain a threat internationally, um, and also we're seeing a resurgent al-Qaeda as well coming out of that. Uh, There's a couple of ways um, that the Islamic State is remaining and expanding. Um, One of the ways that it's doing that is that it's turned into this insurgent force rather than a governing force within uh, Iraq and Syria. It's also um, building an infrastructure uh, around itself through its affiliates and cells uh, abroad in order to continue that fight. It's also continuing its story narratively, so it's making the ideological and narrative case that um, that it's remaining. And also it has a large amount of resources behind it. So at its height, uh, the Islamic State was controlling something like $6 billion in revenue, which is an insane amount of money for a terrorist organization. And now it's dropped to kind of a paltry $400 million that it has in its coffers, which is still quite a significant amount of money for um, an organization that's now just conducting terrorist and insurgent operations rather than trying to govern. Now, we saw uh, when ISIS was at its height that there was a significant ideological and theological divide between al-Qaeda and ISIS. Do we see that that relationship is going to change in the future or do we see that they are still going to remain divided forces? 
Well, the relationship between al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, uh, both operationally and ideologically, I think is a really interesting one. So in many ways, they complement each other. In many ways, they counteract or uh, conflict with one another or compete with one another. So they're obviously competing ideologically. They both have different ways that they're framing jihad. Islamic State has famously been known to frame it through the caliphate and this kind of pioneer narrative of people going to the caliphate and having that be the one true Islamic society and the way that it it brought that caliphate together. Al-Qaeda has shifted now and it's trying to uh, position itself as kind of a more moderate ethno-nationalist type of force um, that can assist in nationalist conflicts. So um, there's that difference that we're seeing. There's competition between affiliates. You saw a number of al-Qaeda affiliates change affiliation to the Islamic State. It'll be very interesting to see whether it goes back. One of the, the things, interesting things that I've noted in my taking a look at the Islamic State is that n- none of its affiliates actually have renounced their affiliation despite the fact that the caliphate collapsed, which was its major selling point. So there's that interesting kind of uh, competition. But they've complemented, I think, uh, each other in very significant ways in that they've expanded the universe of jihad. So they've expanded this spectrum of what jihad means and how it can be fought. And so that's only served to broaden and deepen and normalize Uh, jihadism, particularly in Middle East and Islamic societies, but also in the way that people think about it around the world. So that's, yeah, that's going to be a significant, I think, ramification going forward in terms of the counterterrorism issue. So the fall of the caliphate, has that, and, and it's changed the narrative of ISIS, has it also challenged or created challenges from within for the leadership, given that their narrative of victory has changed? Well, we are definitely seeing a lot of um, conflicts within, ideologically within the Islamic State. And one of those around the issue of takfir in particular. So that's the mean of what that means is renouncing someone else as a non-Muslim. So there are those within the organization that are more rigid in that aspect and others that are not so. So that's one of the divides that we're seeing in the organization. But it's very interesting, too, how successfully and how innovatively the Islamic State has been spinning this narrative of victory. What they're saying now is that we are getting victories through something called hijra, which is immigration. So hijra is this concept within Islam where when the Prophet Muhammad was losing in battles, he would remove himself and go immigrate to another land, for example. Um, And so they're using that example as a way to spin their defeat and saying that this is how we're continuing, just like the Prophet did. And so therefore, we're really not defeated. This is part of one very long continuum and story of the narrative of our Uh, of who we are, what we are as an organization, and what jihad means um, for us and for Muslims around the world. Are we actually seeing a large geographical movement of uh, ISIS fighters or people uh, operating under the ISIS flag? Are they moving into different countries, or is that just the spin that they're putting on it? Well, this issue of foreign fighters is really a significant one for the counterterrorism community. So this is the largest cohort we've ever seen of jihadist fighters. We had something like 40,000, give or take. Uh, the precise math of the fi- of fighters uh, is hard to quantify, but the estimates are 40,000. People go to Iraq and Syria for- to fight into the caliphate. Um, we've seen some studies say that of those that remain, 30% of the Europeans who went to fight have now come back. Um, many of them have died on the ballot battlefield or remain on the battlefield. Some of them are attempting to go to third countries. Many of them have returned home. The biggest cohorts of, of fighters have come from within the Middle East itself. So Tunisia, for example, was a huge uh, uh, contributor of foreign fighters to, to the Islamic State, and many of them have returned toward that way. 
Now the big million dollar question is, is where are they going and what are they going to do? Are they going to try to find other theaters to fight in? Go to other affiliates, for example? There have been reports that um, some have gone to Libya, to Egypt, to Southeast Asia, but we're seeing very limited numbers of that. Um, it seems, though, that the, the majority of them have remained, who are still alive, remained in Iraq and Syria and are either participating in insurgent cells or have become sleeper cells. And if you have returned back to European and Western capitals and the question is, well, have they rehabilitated? Have they been, are we able to rehabilitate them? Are they going to want to carry on the jihadist fight within their country of origin? So these are questions that researchers are grappling with and uh, counterterrorism officials are grappling with. And so on, on to some of the central points of the Women in National Security Conference and, and we're looking at, at um, women as actors and getting women's thoughts on national security challenges that we deal with. Um, you've worked both in the US and in Australia. Are there any differences in terms of diversity between the American national security community and the Australian national security community? Well, I've seen um, both with gender diversity and ethnic and racial diversity um, in both countries, there are a number of fantastic individuals and fantastic women working within that space. And I think in a way that is not often uh, represented as much as they are. So there's kind of this disparity between what's actually happening in terms of women's roles in the national security environment versus what people view them as. Um, there's still a, a ways to go, but I've always been struck by how um, significant the women's presence has been, particularly in counterterrorism analysis within the United States in particular, and also within Australia. So that's been an interesting uh, thing to, to look at and discuss. But going back to the terrorism angle as well, too, um, the, the group that we're studying, the Islamic State and, and jihadist organizations, they've had a major shift in terms of the role of women and what women can do in terms of jihadist combat, the roles that they're called to. So we also had a really in interesting discussion about how that's changing and how the Islamic State is changing its ideology around the role of women, saying it's now not only permissible for women to fight, um, it is uh, incumbent upon them to do so. They recently released uh, some propaganda videos, I think it was last month, showing veiled women fighting side by side with men um, in Iraq and Syria. Now whether or not these were actually women or men dressed up as women, the propaganda message and the ideological message was pretty clear. And these weren't women just conducting suicide operations either, so they weren't like expendable people that they want to do uh, for desperate operations. No, they were actually engaging in hand-to-hand -hand combat and you know, carrying AK-47s alongside with men in combat operations. So it's interesting to see how um, the Islamic State has changed the role of women in combat in a way that's much more progressive, quote-unquote, than some Western governments. Is, is that some kind of macabre egalitarianism that they've suddenly discovered, or, or are they making up for all of their men that have died on the battlefield? Well, I think it was initially that. So we've seen this history of terrorist organizations. When they've become weaker, when men have either fallen out of the recruitment cycle or they've been arrested or they've been killed, they try to get women to step up and fill that void. But this time it's really interesting. It's very different in how they are framing women's participation. They've explicitly stated that we're not involving women just because we're losing on the battlefield. No, in fact were even more committed and women have a critical part in that. So they're not framing it in that way at all, which is a very, very big difference in how we've seen um, jihadist uh, ideology and propaganda presented presented before. Yeah, that's immensely interesting. I'm sure we could talk about this for a long time, but we have a conference to go back into. So thanks very much for talking to us today on the National Security Podcast. No worries. It's been my pleasure.
That was some great insight, and we are really pleased to have caught up with Lydia Khalil. For our main interview today, we are diving into some big questions about creating space for women in the national security environment with an interview from Chantal de jong the president of Women in International Security. But before that, we have some insight to share from participants at the conference as day two draws to an end. Good morning and welcome to day two of Women in National Security Conference. What's your name and who are you here representing? Hi, I'm Sarah Hardy and I'm here representing the Department of Defence. Um, the conference has, I guess, shared information with me about where women differ from men, um, especially um, in the area of soft power, which for me, um, I think, is an area where women really can um, come forward and, um, and it's how we bring different things to the table to men. So, yeah, it's been really great. G'day, Rory Medcalf, Head of the National Security College. Welcome to the Women in National Security Conference Dinner. Pleasure to be here, Chris. And how did you find the conference today? Was there any major takeaway points for you today? It made me fully appreciate really how much expertise and knowledge and talent is out there. I mean, a lot of a lot of people say traditionally in academia it's quite hard to get women to speak about these issues. Well, we found precisely the opposite today. There's an enormous amount of talent. So look, the highlight for me really was that this conference is a platform for, uh, I guess, profiling the talent that exists. Look, the second and third highlights for me, I think it was great to have a student panel this afternoon and to get uh, some very refreshing younger voices, uh, as young as Year 12 students who are doing internships, you know, with the Defence Department and all sorts of things that we don't always know about. And then at the other end of the scale, uh, to hear, you know, top security and policy practitioners like Francis Adamson, the Secretary of DFAT, like Julie Bishop, the, you know, until very recently Foreign Minister, um, giving their very clear, stark, engaging assessments of big political and strategic challenges in the world, but also how uh, it can be particularly challenging to approach these as as a woman. Are you just hanging outside to be getting early for the biscuits? Absolutely. That's what I'm really here for, the desserts. Professor Brian Schmidt, Vice-Chancellor of the ANU, and Les- Dr Leslie Seebeck, the CEO of the Cyber Institute at ANU. Hi, how are you doing? It's uh, pretty exciting out here. What were some of your main takeaways from the conference that you saw today? Well, I mean, the first thing is just the uh, amazing engagement. I mean, there are 400 people in the room, probably 85% of them women. Uh, this is an area we think of being very blokey, uh, and today we saw anything but. Uh, we saw uh, all facets of, uh, of security uh, represented, and to me the energy in the room was, was just amazing. I mean, that's really exciting. And Leslie, we, we've heard a fair bit about um, the, the female participation in the cyber uh, security workforce and how it is actually still quite low. How do you, what do you see the pathways of raising women's participation in cyber security, not only in Australia, but in the, the global national security community? I think there's a, there's a lot of education, an overcoming of fear for stars, uh, creating workplaces that are welcoming to women as well. As you say, it's very blokey. It's not unlike the national security community when I first working you know, many, many years ago. It was 90% male and that's slowly changing and it's all for the better. We can't afford not to let this great potential go unrealised. What's your name and who are you representing? Uh, my name is Gillian Craven. I'm here from the Department of Industry, Innovation and Science. Now we were just having a quick chat about the Indo-Pacific panel yesterday and you have some thoughts on that. 
Yeah, um, uh, there was a really great question uh, from one of the audience members about uh, Germany and, you know, as, as a rising uh, power and um, potentially as a world leader. And the question, you know, was uh, about Australia's uh, links to German, German links, political and security links to uh, Australia uh, are not as strong as, you know, perhaps our links to, you know, the US. And, you know, what do we what do we do about that um, if, if Germany is, a, is you know, um, global leader? How do we build those stronger links? And um, from the Department of Industry, what I see is um, quite strong economic ties between Australia and Germany. And um, so there are, you know, different channels um, for those for those links to occur. Um, and really interesting, you know, um, development in, in uh, on Industry 4.0 um, and Australia's um, interest in working with Germany and uh, MOUs in that space. So I think there's, you know, multiple channels that we can work um, with to build uh, ties to Germany. Um, yeah, and so some opportunities. I think we're going to have to get you back as a panellist at the next Women in National Security <laughs> Conference. Thanks very much for speaking to us today. No worries. Thanks. That was Chris Farnham catching up with some of the participants of the Women in National Security Conference, which has just concluded today in Canberra. We'll have more of those for you tomorrow and another on-the-ground interview with Nicole Ranvert. While Chris has been busy getting amongst the action, we have another guest host, Catherine Manstead, a new senior researcher at the National Security College. Catherine is working in the areas of cybersecurity policy, information operations and strategy, and US-Australian relations. Her publications include work on cyber-enabled foreign interference, network defence, information warfare, and internet privacy. Joining her is Dr. Chantal de Jong-Oudrat. Chantal has been President of Women in International Security, WISE, since February 2013. WISE is the premier organisation in the world dedicated to advancing the leadership and professional development of women in the field of international peace and security. She was also the founding and executive director of the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, North America, and has worked as senior advisor to the US Institute of Peace Center for Gender and Peacebuilding. But before we get into that, a quick reminder that we really enjoy hearing from our listeners about any of the issues we discuss on the podcast. You can get in touch with us via Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society, on Twitter, where we are at Apps Policy Forum, or just flick us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. For now, Catherine Manstead and Chantal Dion Udrat are taking over. G'day and welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm here with Chantal. Welcome to Canberra. Thank you very much, Catherine. I'm delighted to be here. Now, there's so many things that I want to talk with you about today, but I thought we'd start first with the reason that you're here, and that is to be a keynote speaker at the Women in National Security Conference that uh, is happening in Canberra this week. Now, we have a lot of hard hitters from the international security community and also from our own national security community here in Australia. Uh, we've got ministers, former ministers, heads of government departments, leading academics, and all of them just so happen to be women. Now, Chantelle, how important is it to include women in senior decision-making roles in national peace and security? Uh, I think it is critical. 
almost 20 years ago, the UN Security Council actually recognized that it is critical to have women uh, when we're talking about international peace and security issues. Uh, and so it's very nice to see this conference here in Canada. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is the second iteration of this conference and a very high level of uh, experts policymakers. And so it's, uh, I think it's fantastic to see so many people here. In terms of getting more women in the national and international peace and security arena, uh, this has actually been a objective of the organization that I'm heading called Women in International Security, also known as WISE. And it's kind of sad that 30 years later, when this organization was first established, that we still need this uh, type of organization. Chantal, can I just take you back? You mentioned the UN Security Council resolution. We're coming up to 18 years, I think, since it was unanimously passed. And it said, uh, you know, it surprises me first because often 15 countries on the UNSC agreeing to anything is a surprise. Uh, And they all agreed that we need to empower more women to participate in national security. At the National Security College, we think a lot about the changing nature of of warfare and of conflict. What do you think that resolution signified in terms of how conflict is changing and evolving in the 21st century? So I think we have to go back to when this resolution was adopted in, in 2000 and the fact that we saw a change in the nature of conflict from interstate to intrastate war is obviously a a major reason why we saw this particular uh, resolution. But it's also true, I think, that the role of civil society was huge. Without civil society, we, we, we would have never seen this resolution see the day of light. And it was really women and women's organization who fought very, very hard for this resolution. Some have said that uh, because of the activism of the civil society organization, they really pushed the members of the UN Security Council to go further than they maybe initially would have wanted to go. That's fascinating. What, though, do you think we've seen in terms of success on the implementation of the of the women in peace and security agenda at, at, na- at the national level around the world? So if we look at the women, peace and security agenda and what kind of progress we have made in the past 18 years, it's a little bit of a question. Do you see the glass as half full or half empty? And I have a tendency of seeing it more as a glass half empty I think it is true that we have made a lot of progress, in particular the fact that states have adopted national action plans to implement the principles of this resolution in their, in their policies. But it is also true that many of these national action plans 
remain more sort of rhetorical declarations of intent rather than uh, declarations of you know actions that they're going to take. Uh, many of these plans have no resources attached to them. And so for many, I think many of these national action plans are great instruments to hold governments accountable, but actual implementation, I think, has been quite minimal, really. Well, let's go back then to the purpose of, of why we want to elevate women into this conversation and, and taking a seat at the table. Because it's not just an equity issue, is it? There's real benefits to come when women are involved in peace and security. Well, there's a lot of research that has shown that if you have more diverse negotiating tables, uh, you get better results. We know this from the corporate sector. Uh, that a diverse group of people will make better decisions, uh, will be more effective. There is some research by McKinsey that has shown that, you know, you get more women in the workforce or in your corporations, your corporations actually do better. So we actually have research that shows that more diverse people around the table will lead to better results. And the same goes through for international peace and security issues, uh, peace negotiations. We know that if you have more women around the negotiating table, the chance of the peace agreement being lasting and sustainable is greater. Unfortunately, despite our commitments to get a more diverse group of people around the table, representative of society at large, we see actually a regression in terms of people around the negotiating table. Interesting. Is that in any particular countries or regions or is that across the board where we're seeing this reversal? I think it is actually a little bit across the board. The executive director of UN Women in the debate last year about UN Security Council Resolution 1325 noted that uh, there was actually a decrease in the number of women being involved. You look at the negotiations going on around uh, Syria, Afghanistan, Yemen. I mean, women are uh, absent from the formal negotiating efforts here. To shift from the glass half empty to maybe a maybe a half full approach here. Your organization, WISE, is the premier organization in the world for advancing women's leadership and professional development in national security. What are some of the success stories that you've had in that role? Uh, and what would you kind of give as advice to organizations here in Australia uh, or around the world wanting to help women advance through a national security or international security career? So I think WISE, as I mentioned, uh, WISE was established 30 years ago. And uh, the role at the time was really to promote the role of women in the international peace and security field, to help them succeed in this field through mentorship and skills building, skill building uh, exercises. Uh, if you look at the uh, previous administration, we actually saw that a lot of the people in that administration were former members of WISE. Uh, they had gone through uh, several of our programs. So I think that was a real success. And and we pointed to that as saying, you know, we, we have really made an impact 
That said, if I look at the organization today, I also see a lot of student members that we have. And so it means that young women, students still feel the need for an organization likewise, feel the need for more networking opportunities, for uh, opportunities to build up their confidence. And so we continue to do that as an organization. But we have also, in the past few years, uh, focused a little bit more on research and policy engagement, because I think it is really critical for an organization likewise to be present at the policy debates around national and international security. And so we have uh, engaged in a number of research projects, particular projects that look at the gender dimensions of international peace and security challenges, because... You know, you look at most of the national and international security studies programs, they don't consider gender uh, really as an important lens or element or variable uh, to take into account when they're looking at international security challenges. Now might be a good time to, to ask you about the role of gender in countering violent extremism because that's something that's been increasingly on the on the world agenda in the last 20 years. And I've heard you speak before about some interesting and maybe unexpected relationships between women's empowerment and violent extremism. Maybe you could elaborate on that for me. Well, you know, it's interesting when terrorist organisations understand gender better than we in the national and international security establishment. A group like ISIS has actually understood that gender is very important. They have played on this and in their recruitment efforts, they have told in particular young women to come and join them, that they will be respected and are worthy members of society. And as a result, we have actually seen the number of women joining ISIS increase. They have also appealed to the gender, gendered nature of men, if you want. Uh, they have said, you know, come and join us. You will be considered a real man. You will be rewarded as a man. And so, you know, groups like ISIS have actually understood these gender dimensions and have played and manipulated these dimensions in their recruitment efforts. Now, the policymakers and, and, you know, national policymakers, a little belatedly, have understood that it is really important to involve women in the fight against terrorism, in the prevention of violent extremism. Unfortunately, a lot of the effort has had a tendency of reinforcing gender stereotypes, particularly with regard to women, where women are being seen as mothers, uh, mothers that may have a lot of influence in the house, maybe not outside of the house, but a lot of influence in the house, and so would potentially be good actors to help in the fight against violent extremism. They would be able to recognize whether and when their children are attracted to these violent extremist ideologies and then be able to intervene. But I think, you know, what it, what it omits to realize is that in many situations, women don't have much respect from family members or their children. 
and are in many situations regarded as sort of secondary citizens. Uh, I remember working with a number of women and women's groups who were active in this field. And, you know, women would say, well, you know, my kids just see me as the washing machine, as the one who cooks, who cleans, but I'm not being considered really a serious person to be able to intervene. So it seems to me to pick up on on something you were alluding to there, that there's a lot of stereotypes that when you're involved in kind of understanding gender and, and security that you must come up against. And women have a very multifaceted experience. So you can have women as mothers, women as victims sometimes, but women are also decision makers. Women are sometimes combatants. They can be part of the solution and they can be part of the problem as well. How, when you're approaching gender and international security, do you think about the diverse experiences of women? And how do you try and capture the very different multifaceted ways in which women as kind of puzzle pieces in international security fit together with the overall picture? I think we have to make a difference between gender and women. Gender doesn't equal women. Gender is about men and women and other genders. And I think what the Women, Peace and Security agenda has tried to emphasize is that we really need to take into account the different gender dimensions. So we need to take into account the different experiences that women and men have. And men and women have multiple experiences. They may be victim as well as agent. And that is true, you know, for for men or women. And I think as national or international policymakers, we need to realize what the impact is of our policies on the different people that we're trying to impact. Well, let me take you back then to the work of WISE again, because one thing I'm really interested in, you mentioned young people and the fact that they are really keen to be involved and are often reaching out for support and help. And you mentioned that mentoring can play a role in supporting men and women to advance in their professional development. Mentoring for me is always a very strange and opaque thing. I think a lot of discussions I have with with young people, you know, what is a mentor? How do I get a mentor? What does a good mentoring relationship look like? Maybe you could reflect for me on you know, what is a what is a good mentoring relationship? And for young people starting out in this, this career, how would they go about trying to find that type of relationship? So I think good mentoring is really about listening. Uh, and good mentoring can also be peer-to-peer. It doesn't necessarily have to be from younger to older. So I think listening is, is key. Second, and that is particularly true if the mentorship is a relationship between a more senior and a more junior person, is to encourage people to go after opportunities, to help find opportunities, to advise on how to approach different issues. And how do you know who's a good fit for you? Uh, Sometimes I think we think of mentors as the fairy godmother who comes out of the sky and says, I am your mentor. But how do we identify and kind of build that relationship to seek a mentor? It is a relationship, as you said. So it is both the senior person as well as the junior person or the junior junior person that will decide whether this is a good fit, whether people are actually listening to each other, yes or no. 
And so I think it's neither a rocket science nor a a silver bullet. I think this would be a good time to pivot again in another direction because gender and security isn't just your only area of expertise. You're also a specialist in disarmament and arms control. And one of the things that we spend a lot of time thinking about here, the National Security College, is trying to take the temperature of what the world's doing right now. And for a lot of us, we look overseas and we see the resurgence of great power conflict, perhaps, uh, an increasingly tense relationship between the US and China. Uh, And we also see nuclear issues coming back to centre stage with, for instance, the US withdrawing from a long-standing arms control treaty with Russia or indicating that it would do so uh, just this week. What's your sense as, as someone coming at this from a disarmament perspective of where we're headed right now? Well, as you said, I started out my professional career actually in disarmament and arms control. And I think these issues are coming back with quite some urgency on the international agenda. There's not only Iran and the withdrawal from this withdrawal of the U.S. from the Iran agreement. There's, of course, North Korea. And now there is the possible withdrawal of the United States from the INF Treaty. And I think the latter in particular is, is very worrisome. It shows that there is a total disrespect of international law and of international cooperation that in the world of today, where we're dealing with so many global challenges, the idea that one could deal with these challenges unilaterally is is just ridiculous. But that's where the United States seem to be going. And I think it is really, really worrisome. If you were looking at this from an Australian perspective, if you're the foreign minister of Australia, for instance, how would you be approaching some of these difficult issues? We see a more unilateral United States. We see Russia, on the other hand, potentially not really playing ball with with these agreements in the first place. What can a what can a middle power like Australia do, and what, in your professional experience, have you seen middle powers do effectively to be a, a good citizen, uh, to to play a positive role in these types of debates? Well, I think it's absolutely necessary that we support the multilateral organisations that we have, uh, both the regional organisations as well as the global organisations, the United Nations, and I think so for countries like. Australia or European countries, the EU, it's really critical that they step up their efforts to strengthen international and multilateral organizations. That seems like a very difficult ask in these times, I must say. Not re- I, I think actually the European Union uh, and European states are supporting multilateral organizations because, of course, the European project as such is a multilateral endeavor for peace. And so I think deeply ingrained maybe in the European psyche is this notion of multilateral cooperation and that you can't go it alone. So I'm a little bit more optimistic than you on on that front. But it is true that if we look at the world today, uh, it seems so polarized and the extremes, particularly on the right, are very, very worrisome. And of course, You know, I come from the United States. I live in Washington, D.C. Sometimes we refer to this town as crazy town. 
and you think, you know, it can't get any worse, but it does. So I think we really need to uh, to fight this, this polarization. You mentioned that you are based in DC at the moment, and I know that you have had very illustrious career spanning international organizations, national lobbying and advocacy in the US. You've also taught at Georgetown University. I thought maybe as a, a final reflection, if you could tell me a bit about what you've enjoyed in these different roles in different sectors, what has drawn you to each of those different pathways and what have you enjoyed most about each of those different pathways? Well, I think there is one red thread, if you want, that runs through my professional career and that is trying to influence policy in whatever way we can. And so that is either by educating young people. It is by doing advocacy directly with policymakers. It is being actively engaged in policy debates. And that's also one of the reasons why with WISE we've moved more towards a research direction to be able to influence those those policy debates. But I think, you know, all of us who are studying political science, security studies, we do this ultimately because we do want to make the world a better place. Now, this might sound a little, you know, but ultimately that is the motivation for our interest in these in these issues. And what better calling card really for anyone, male, female, uh, young, old, who wants to be involved in this field that you've you've made your mark in, than saying that it is to make the world a better place. I think that's an absolutely honourable objective. And despite, I think, at times the, the half-empty glass which you've portrayed for us, I think with the interest that we're seeing around the world at the moment from people in contributing to this space, I think we can move it to a, to a glass full. I'm very optimistic, I think, on, on, this, on this matter. Um, and just before we do wrap up, I thought what I would most like from, from you is some guidance. If there was one thing that we could do in our policy community here to get gender and international security as a discipline more on the agenda there was one thing we could do, what would it be? Well, you're at the university. So I think it is critical that you teach your young students about gender and what it means to incorporate a gender in international security studies. Currently, that's not happening. It's certainly not happening in the United States. It's not happening in Europe, or at least in, in some, most European countries. I'm not sure whether it's happening here in Australia. I know you have some very strong departments and research institutes who are looking at uh, the role of gender in international peace and security. But I, I think it is really critical to integrate this in the curriculum of security studies. And that is also one of the things that WISE is currently working on very actively. Well, I think that's very important advice. In fact, your whole conversation has been very illuminating for me. So I want to thank you, Chantal, for joining the National Security Podcast. And we look forward to the rest of the conference and, and your participation throughout the week. Okay. Thank you very much, Catherine.
That's a great way to finish our pod, with a glass half full attitude to the possibility of positive change. So that's it for today. Gabriel can I appear with you, bringing the latest from our fantastic women in national security. We'll see you tomorrow. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.